Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Today's guest has done a tremendous service to American public schools to set the stage for a future where diverse religious beliefs are understood, appreciated, and acknowledged as being an important part of what makes the United States an amazing place to live. My guest today is Dr. Charles Haynes. For someone who has only really been working in religious studies in schools for the last five years or so, talking to Charles Haynes about his life and profession is like a young lawyer having the opportunity to have a deep conversation with someone like John Paul Stevens or Sandra Day O'Connor and having their undivided attention for over an hour. I frankly love this conversation. And I will cherish not only that I was able to have this conversation with Dr. Haynes, but that I get to bring it to the world on this show. My deepest thanks go out to Charles Haynes for spending so much time with me in late November 2018 to record this episode. I have so much gratitude, Dr. Haynes, for making this episode with me. Charles C. Haynes is Vice President of Freedom Forum Institute and Religious Freedom Center and a Senior Scholar at the First Amendment Center. Haynes is best known for his work on First Amendment issues in public schools. Over the past two decades, he has been the principal organizer and drafter of consensus guidelines on religious liberty in schools, endorsed by a broad range of religious and educational institutions. In January 2000, three of the guides were distributed by the U.S. Department of Education to every public school in the nation. These are a parent's guide to religion in the public schools, a Teacher's Guide to Religion in the Public Schools, and Public Schools and Religious Communities. Haynes is the author or co-author of six books, including First Freedoms, A Documentary History of First Amendment Rights in America, and Religion in American Public Life, Living with Our Deepest Differences. His column, Inside the First Amendment, appears in newspapers nationwide. A link directly to his archived columns is below in the show notes. He is a founding board member of the Character Education Partnership and serves on the steering committee of the Campaign for the Civic Mission of Schools and the American Bar Association Advisory Commission on Public Education. He chairs the Committee on Religious Liberty, founded by the National Council of Churches. Widely quoted in news magazines and major newspapers, Haynes is also a frequent guest on television and radio. He has been profiled in the Wall Street Journal and on ABC's Evening News. In 2008, he received the Virginia First Freedom Award from his Council for America's First Freedom. Haynes holds a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School and a doctorate from Emory University. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Charles Haynes of the Religious Freedom Center.
Dr. Charles Haynes, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Well, I'm very happy to be with you. Uh, really good of you to have me on your show. I suspect that many people in my audience who are largely teachers and professors and curious people, many will be familiar with who you are, but could you briefly introduce yourself and maybe your most recent role as well? Sure. Well, I think my most recent role would be as founding director of the Religious Freedom Center. It's located at the museum in Washington, D.C., and it's part of the Freedom Forum Institute. Excellent. So um, I want to tell you a little story about how I found you. I first found you by reading about you in Linda K. Wertheimer's book, Faith Ed, as I was in my second year of teaching a religious studies high school course in Missouri. And your name stuck out to me, and I remembered it. And a few months ago, I had a problem, and I almost wrote to you, just out of the blue. And I had a moment in my classroom where a guest speaker who was a clergy member crossed the line in my view, and did not really respect the boundary between separation of church and state in a public school. And I was nervous. I was scared there would be backlash from parents, disillusioned students. Um, But instead of writing to you, I had a few private conversations with parents instead, which wound up being really wonderful. And I'm curious about over the course of your career at the Religious Freedom Center, how often have teachers like me written to you with concerns about how to handle issues like that? Oh, I get these questions all the time. Uh, I won't say daily anymore, but uh, but very very frequently. You know, just uh, from from both people reporting on schools, many in the media, but also from teachers, administrators. Yes, so I'm I'm sort of the dear Abby of religion and schools, if you will. Excellent. <laughs> what is um What's something that you normally say if I were to write to you about my issue and I was expressing, you know trepidation of some kind, what would you have said to me in your email response about my question? Yeah, I'm not giving you legal advice. <laughs> not, that's what I would start out. Perfect. You know, because uh, obviously what I can do is comment generally on my understanding of the law, but, you know, I don't want the ABA to come after me because I gave you bad legal advice and your school board attorney is, is there for that. No, but I what I do is I try to, to sort of help people see that the First Amendment, you know, there are guidelines, there are legal rulings, but it's also a lot about judgment. And, you know, I think the way you handle it, for example, by going to the parents and kind of explaining the context and letting them know that it wasn't something you set up or that you intended, that usually diffuses it right there because most parents understand that. So that's the thing. I mean, obviously, guest speakers have to have guidelines, and I'm sure that this 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 guy this guy had guidelines and didn't follow them. Uh, but you know, you can't always control that. So what you do in that situation is you you don't get the hook or ring the gong. You know, you usually sort of let the person uh, say their say, and then later, you know, you explain to students and pa- and uh, and parents what happened. Excellent. So as the dear Abby, as you mentioned, of the world of religious studies in school, I want to kind of go back in time and I want to explore your life because I know that you've recently retired, correct? Yes, uh, though that's really a difficult word to use, you know, because I don't see myself as uh, retiring or stopping, but I think I'm transitioning to a different role. Excellent. You know, sort of the the uh, you know the old thing about don't be the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. That right. thing. Well, um, <clears throat> I'm trying to be the guide on the side and be advisor to my center that I started and and uh, I've tried to pass the torch to a new generation, as it were. So yeah, so I have I'm seeing myself in a new role, but I also have a lot of private projects, personal projects, I should say, that I want to work on. So yes, more time for that. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> So how did uh, religion play a role in your life growing up from a young age? Like what was your, did you have a spiritual life whenever you were young? Yeah. Is this a multi-part series? <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see where it goes. How many hours do we have? No, I'll try, <laughs> I'll try to be succinct. That's, that's of course the big question uh, in, in, in one's life. It's always paid, the, the heart of the matter is always play, played a very big role in my life. Um, I think I was, from a very young age, uh, deeply interested in God and spirituality and religion. Uh, so it shaped me from early, early years. 
And, uh, you know, in fact, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a minister. I uh, was very, very drawn to, to that kind of life. Uh, as I grew older, I was less interested in becoming part of organized religion, and, but I still wanted to develop a spiritual life. And so that has been a kind of guiding force in my life. So as you got older, and as you mentioned, you said you didn't want to be a part of an organized religion, but you were interested in it as an area of academic interest, correct? Yes, both. Yes, both. So how did you come to be interested in religion as an academic area of interest as well as a spiritual pursuit? Well, you know, when, when I became interested in spiritual life and religion, uh, I, of course, was, well, I mean, I was brought up in the church, in the Methodist church, uh, and eventually migrated to the Episcopalian church. But um, at the same time, I encountered very early on an Indian spiritual master, Meher Baba, who passed away in 1969, but this was uh, during his last trip to the United States, and I was just a little boy. But that encounter with someone like that, who was a great spiritual master, uh, it changed my life, really, and it opened me up to many possibilities for spiritual life, for seeking truth, and that naturally led to wanting, me wanting to study as I got older the various approaches to spiritual life, to, to the transcendent, and uh, when I decided to go to college, uh, you know, what else to study? but that which was my passion, my search. So it was part of a lifelong search for understanding uh, of myself and of others. Do you remember any of the courses that you took? First of all, where did you wind up going for your undergraduate studies? Well, I went to Emory University in Atlanta, and I, and I chuckle about it because, you know, I... I I guess I could have gone to any number of places, but I, I went there early decision. And, and, uh, and the reason was that I saw on the cover of Time magazine, is God dead in big letters? And, you know, I devoured the article and I saw that Thomas Altizer, a theologian of the day, was teaching at Emory University. And he was one of the leaders of this so-called death of God movement. And, you know, they actually didn't believe God was dead. That wasn't, but that was the shorthand media version of their theological struggle. But I was immediately intrigued, and I thought, Emory is a place where people are really struggling with these deep and profound issues, difficult questions. And I wanted to go. Uh, you know, and I found that, uh, and, and Dr. Altizer was there, and I, I did study with him, uh, process theology. Uh, at that time was was very popular and, and he was teaching a course in that and I studied with John Fenton who was the only one in the religious studies department at Emory who really specialized in Eastern traditions and I was of course fascinated by that because of my encounter with Meher Baba and uh, Buddhism, Hinduism but I also studied Christian ethics and Christian theology with <clears throat> the great Jack Boozer who was there and uh, and New Testament with, with Beardsley, who was a great New Testament scholar. So I had wonderful professors, and I tried to take a range of courses in religious studies to, to understand that field and that world. Do any books jump out at you from that formative time that was so transformational to your life? Well, I think John Cobb's book on process theology um, was very important to me because it really opened me up to new ways of thinking about God and to uh, exploring the idea of God uh, in a fresh way. So I think John Cobb was important to me. Um, Thomas Burton was very important to me, less of an academic uh, approach, but I was very taken with his spiritual journey, as, as of course are many people, but also with um, the many ways in which he explored Western and Eastern spirituality, their intersection, and tried to go deeply into what, what is the well of these ways of life, and not only in his own experience, but in study of Zen Buddhism, in study of Christian 
theology. So I would say Thomas Merton at that time was very important. And by the way, we're 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 in a, in a couple of weeks. We'll be it'll be his fiftieth anniversary of his of his death uh, on December tenth. Oh, excellent. Okay, I'll see if I can find some recommendations to throw into the notes. Do you have any titles that you would recommend for any listeners? Well, I love many of his books, but New Seeds of Contemplation, I think, is one of his great books. Thoughts in Solitude, uh, those two are kind of at the top of my list. Most people think of him and they think of his autobiography, which was an early book, Seven Story Mountain. But uh, he wrote 60-some books, and that was one of the early ones. And uh, I like the ones, the later ones, uh, about Zen Mystics is another one. Uh, his books on prayer, th- those are the ones that have influenced me the most. Excellent. So my journey into doing religious studies as sort of a, a job was a total fluke. I was looking for a course at the University of Missouri, and I stumbled upon a Chinese religions class with Dr. Philip Clark, who is now at the University of Leipzig in Germany. And I also had some history classes about African um, indigenous history with Abdullahi Ibrahim at Mizzou. And those courses stuck with me as I went into the world of being a social studies teacher and an English teacher. So my crossroads of becoming uh, involved in the religious studies teaching world was just totally by chance, but yours seems a lot more pursued on purpose. Do any major crossroads spring to mind as you um, were going out of college into the professional world? Yes. I mean, I went uh, from Emory. I taught um, for a little while, but I also then went on to Harvard Divinity School. And, you know, that was a very important time in my life to explore um, religion and theology in great depth with some of the great minds of the time. Um, Richard Niebuhr was there, uh, Gordon Kaufman, uh, uh, you know, the, Wilfred Cantwell Smith on world religions. So these were some of the giants, really. Uh, and I was just fortunate to, to be there when they were there and to struggle with my own spiritual life uh, and with religious studies, uh, always at the same time for me. They never were separated. They were always part of part of a, a seeking, a, a sort of a struggle to understand and to know. Um, you know, at the same time, I was struggling with, you know, do I go into the ministry or do I go more in the academic route? And I was at Harvard Divinity School on a fellowship to look at the possibility of going into the ministry. That's why Rockefeller Brothers sent me there. But... While there, I realized that I didn't think I would have a home uh, as an ordained clergy person, that that really didn't, I, I wasn't a fit for that. And my spiritual life didn't, didn't take me there. So I thought the academic route really was, was the best way for me to keep exploring, keep learning, uh, teaching, uh, but also to, uh, to have this personal life that um, that I could develop in personal spiritual life that I could develop while doing that. Did you take a Master's of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School? Yes, Master's of Theological Studies, not Master of Divinity. So there was a there was sort of a fork in the road moment where you could go sort of the more academic route or you could go the ordination route. And so I I started in the Master of Divinity program, but then I, I went over to the Master of Theological Studies program. Did you go straight into a PhD program after your Master of Theological Studies, or did you go into a, a job in between those times? Well, it's interesting. I thought while I was there that maybe I should be teaching uh, young people, high school or even younger, about religions in public school, because my professor at Emory, John Fenton, had worked on how to teach about religion in public school when he was in, in Pennsylvania, in fact, developed an elective course for Pennsylvania schools. So I was influenced by that, and I thought, that's, that's maybe a role for me. But how to, how to do that? In those days, and this is now you know, the early 70s, there were not very many opportunities to teach about religion in public school. So I went to Dean Stendahl at Harvard, Christopher Stendahl is our dean, 
And I said, you know, I would really like to get certified to teach in public school and also find a way to teach about religion. But how do I do that? And he said, well, let's look at it. He said, uh, maybe we can do a joint program with the School of Education. So I said, all right. So he said, go over and ask. So I started a program for students at Harvard Divinity School to get certified to teach in public school while getting their MTS. It's kind of a joint program, and I was one of the first students to go through it. It lasted for many years after that. Uh, a great many other people went through it. Most recently, Diane Moore was head of that program, uh, the last head of that program before it ended and it went into some other form. Point being, that was that was what I thought I was going to do. But then afterwards, I, the only jobs I could get were teaching social studies, which was great, but um, it really didn't fill that passion for me. So Dr. Boozer at Emory, I was teaching public school in Atlanta, and, and I was meeting with him one day, who was one of the great souls I've known in my life, Jack Boozer, a uh, Christian ethicist. Uh, he's passed away sadly, but he, he was the conscience of the university. He was just... He lived what he taught, which is why I loved him so much. But, you know, I said, I don't know, Jack, if I want to keep teaching in a public school. I'm not sure if I can't teach about religion. He said, well, you know, think about getting a Ph.D. He said, a lot of people can do what you're doing. I was teaching seventh grade at the time, <laughs> which was <laughs> quite a challenge. Yes. Uh, I love the kids, but boy, uh, and he said, think about getting a doctorate because you could, you know, maybe you could explore there some other things. So anyway, that's what led me to go for my doctorate. And where else to go but Emory because there were my friends and these professors knew me well and, and, uh, and knew my, my kind of eclectic and eccentric, if you will, interests. You know, I, I didn't really want to go into Christian theology, but... Eastern religions, I didn't, you know, was not, I wanted something where I could explore the intersection of those things. And so that's why I did my doctorate at Emory. What was the focus of your research? Did it have to do with teaching in schools? No, it didn't actually. Um, but I mean, except indirectly, I mean, I've used all of that in my career, but um, I didn't really know whether that was going to work out as a career. So I decided to just focus on the things that I was most deeply interested in. And actually, my dissertation, I studied a lot about uh, spiritual life, and, uh, and Merton actually was a key person. Paul Tillich was a key figure in my studies. Uh, spent a lot of time with Tillich. Um, and, and, of course, Eastern religions. But when it came to the dissertation, I wrote it on Meher Baba. Oh, wonderful. Uh, today, it is the... Uh, <laughs> so far, only dissertation on Mayor Baba, it, and was published as a little book afterwards by uh, folks who thought it might be useful. And, and I had to rewrite it to in English. Uh, that is to say, you know, out of dissertation ease, yeah, people could read read it. But uh, but that was a joy to do, and my professors were very generous in allowing me to do. A very uh, uh, unusual project. Excellent. So when you convocated with your PhD, where did you go from there? Like, I'm curious about if you could trace a path between then when you graduated with the PhD until the founding of the Religious Freedom Center. Well, it's a, it's a kind of a roller coaster story, but I think the heart of that story is I am, I've never been an ambitious person. I don't plan. I don't sort of seek opportunities. I sort of am open to what comes and I respond. You know, that's kind of my nature. And uh, when I left, uh, got my PhD, or I was in the process of writing my dissertation, I took a job at Randolph-Macon College because they asked me. And, they, and it was just a temporary thing to teach religious studies. Someone was on sabbatical. But then at the end of that year, my nature caught up with me, Greg. I mean, you know, and I'm a very, I'm a Jungian, by the way, in, in terms of my orientation and uh, psychologically, I, I think of these things in Jungian, very Jungian terms. <laughs> so I, I feel as though who we really are can't be 
denied and will express itself. It will, it will come out in some way, for better or for worse. And they asked me at the end of that year, will you stay on and be our chaplain? Well, you know, I, as a child, I thought I'd, I would be a minister. And I said, but you know, I'm not ordained. That's not the path I chose. Oh, they said, that doesn't matter. We want you just, you know, you don't have to be ordained. We want you to, you know. And it turns out they knew me pretty well. They knew me better than myself. I mean, I knew, they knew that I would love working with students on human rights, on the the hunger movement, on, you know, and, and also spiritual life. They knew that that's, the, they, they, they knew that's what would make me happy. They knew me better than myself. So I stayed and I kept teaching religious studies for them because I didn't want to stop teaching. But I also took that position. And so that really did give me an opportunity to to learn about how to communicate about religion to young people in different ways in the classroom. Uh, I taught a Jungian seminar, Jungian religion. Uh, I taught uh, scripture, Old and New Testament, uh, world religions. You know, when you're in a small college, you teach everything. Mm-hmm. Also had an opportunity to work with young people uh, on spiritual life, on their issues, on their struggles, on their search for meaning uh, in the in the program, the, the various programs we established there for for um, the chaplaincy. So that really was formative. Uh, and and set me up to uh, have this career that I have now. So there was no straight line. And I tell you, uh, when I left academia, left Randolph-Macon, it wasn't with a job or with an idea of what kind of career I would have. It was with the feeling that I needed to go into the world and be active on the front lines in some way of doing something I deeply cared about. Because I've been in academia essentially my whole uh, life at that point, or adult life, and I thought, well, gee, I want to, I want to be, uh, you know, I had had an Amnesty International chapter, a hunger task force, you know, I want to do something that that has direct impact. And I saw so many of my students graduate and, and do those things, so I left into the unknown. You know, I left Randolph Macon College, and I didn't know. I moved to Washington D.C. I had no job, no future, no, nothing. Um, I had a good friend and, and he was kind enough to let me give me a place to be. Uh, but that really started this career uh, in the First Amendment and religion in schools, because that happened to be in the mid 80s. OK. And you're far too young to remember this. But in the mid 80s, there were textbook trials in Tennessee and Alabama over the absence of religion or the use of religion in textbooks, that when they were actually two big trials. And at the same time, uh, there were studies, one of which was mine, I was the first, and then a couple of others about religion in textbooks or the absence of religion in textbooks. And so it just so happened that when I was in Washington, Americans United for Separation Church and State had a small research foundation and they gave me a, a place to work on these issues. So it was kind of ironic. I did a textbook study about how religion was not in the textbooks and religious freedom wasn't discussed for Americans United, which was known as a separationist group. <laughs> but actually, that's not inconsistent. It just sounds inconsistent. Uh, separation of church and state did not mean to Americans United and and does not mean and doesn't mean to me that religion has no place in public schools or public life. The question is, how does it have a place? Of course, you have to teach about religion to teach history or to teach art or music and so forth. I mean, we say, of course, today, but back in the mid 80s, there was a lot of controversy even to talk about it. So I did a textbook study and got a little bit of notice on that. But more importantly, um, out of those textbook trials, a number of us got together and decided we need guidelines on how to do this. And amazingly enough, Greg, after 150 years of fighting about the role of religion in public schools, there were no guidelines. I mean, mm. just, there were some court cases and so forth and Supreme Court decisions, but no consensus way of doing this that could guide teachers, administrators and parents on how religion should be treated in schools. 
So you had people either thinking that religion had no place in a public school, you know, keep it all out, separation of church and state or, or a wrong understanding of it, or my religion should be taught there and not yours. You right. Know? And Protestant religion had been, of course, the dominant religion in schools for our history. So those two models were all people had in their minds, and they thought, that's the choice we have. It's the all or nothing. And many of us felt we could do better. And so out of that realization that these textbook trials were taking us down a very bad road, and yet another chapter in fighting and shouting past one another about religion in public schools, that we could do better. And we sat together, and uh, my good friend Oliver Thomas, Buzz Thomas, who's a great lawyer, religious liberty lawyer, he and I co-chaired this effort. And after a year and a half of negotiation, we came up with the first national guidelines on how religion should be treated in the public school curriculum. And we got the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, we got the Christian Legal Society sort of on the conservative side. But then we got the American Jewish Committee. We got uh, various all the education groups, school boards, teachers unions to sign on. In other words, as we got as many on the right and the left to say, yes, this is how you do it. And uh, and took a year and a half to get that first agreement. Then we did nine more over the next couple of decades. But that first one was a defining moment for us and I think for the country because it showed we can do this under the First Amendment. We don't have to always litigate and fight and scream past one another. We can actually use First Amendment principles to bring us together and to get this right. So that really launched my career, those consensus guidelines. When you came out with these consensus guidelines, what was the landscape like in actual high schools across the country? How many courses existed? I mean, I bet it was like, I bet people were terrified to try, but did any religious studies courses exist in high schools in the 1980s? Some, but actually in the 70s, there had been a sort of blossoming of interest in this that had died out by the 80s. It's kind of one of those things where it didn't have a good constituency, but uh, it had a lot of energy from people at Wright State University, the National Council on Religion and Public Education. It was kind of a movement. Mm -hmm. You had electives in Pennsylvania. You had electives in Florida that were pretty widespread. Uh, you had a lot of Bible courses start. Uh, Thayer Warshaw and other giants in the field started Bible as, as in literature, they called it, courses. Mm -hmm. So that movement was vigorous for a time, and but by the time the mid-80s and these textbook trials came, they had died out for the most part. And there were still some, but pretty rare. And the key was that the textbooks that everyone used hadn't changed. The social studies profession hadn't really taken, uh, found a way to, to include more study about religions in what everybody taught, uh, uh, studied. So you know, it never really got into the curriculum. But by the, so by the 80s, there was this unrest about this, particularly on the right, thinking that this is yet another example of how we're excluded. You know, it's all left out. And people on the left saying, we're not going back to the bad days when, you know, your religion was promoted uh, in the public schools and violated the conscience of our students. We're not going back there. So there was this if you ask me what schools were like, I traveled across the country in the 80s and uh, in early 90s and, and visited thousands of schools probably. And uh, they, you, you had one of two things. You had either schools where people were afraid to mention religion at all. Teachers were afraid, even if they were teaching history, to talk about religion, even when it was supposed to come up which wasn't very often, the textbooks really didn't say much about religion. But, you know, even, and sometimes you have to talk about it, but they would kind of skim over it, or, you know, Martin Luther King was a minister, was, was a political leader, but not much about that he was a minister. You know, there was not any, and the Puritans, you know, <laughs> very little about their actual theology, which has, by the way, shaped America in deep ways, for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. 
So none of that was there in those schools, and that's the majority of schools. But then you travel in other places, rural areas, uh, particularly in the South, and, you know, it was the way it was long ago. Uh, people were still, you know, prayers uh, over the loudspeaker and, you know, uh, Christmas pageants, uh, and, you know, the vestiges of those days when of, of semi-established Protestant schools. The curriculum, however, didn't have religion because, you know, the Protestants got rid of that in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but out of fear of Catholicism. Hmm. So the curriculum had nothing. So people were reduced to fighting about, you know, these 60 second meaningless prayers, you know, as though that somehow they were clinging to the vestiges of their hegemony, the Protestant hegemony. And that's what most of the lawsuits were about. And ironically, instead of focusing on what people learned for 12 years, which you think would be important, what was really at stake, they focused on these you know, symbolic moments. But the textbook trials in Tennessee and Alabama actually woke a lot of people up on left and right to the problem. And on the right, they realized, you know what? We can have all the 60-second to whom it may concern prayers that we want, and kids are learning, you know, they called it secular humanism. Right. They're learning about the world and each and all these subjects through a secular lens, and they're not being exposed to any way in which religious people see the world. They got it, you know. So, you know, that was an aha moment on the right. And on the left, it was like, wait a minute. Is this a good education? Do we really think that you can teach and have a a nation, teach about history and have a nation of diverse, you know, religious diversity and nobody learns about anybody else. Nobody learns about the role religion has played for better and for worse in American history or in world history. And on the left, there was a widespread realization, you know, we've got this wrong. Keeping it out is, first of all, not an option under the First Amendment, really. But it's also bad for education. Yeah. So, I, you know, it was kind of that serendipitous moment for me because my common ground Buzz Thomas and I, our common ground approach, our First Amendment framework approach, had its moment right then. And, uh, and, and we were helped by the fact that in California, they were revising their social studies history framework right at that time in the late 80s. And, you know, I went out there and uh, a number of us worked at that, testified, worked at it behind the scenes. And that framework, for the first time, treated religion generously in the social studies. That was the first breakthrough. And Houghton Mifflin then wrote textbooks to to speak to the framework that also, lo and behold, taught about religions in ways that we had not seen before. Mm-hmm. So the combination of that breakthrough, the consensus guidelines, which had the right and the left agreeing for different reasons, that this is the right approach, and I have to add the Equal Access Act of 1984, um, which gave students uh, the right to form religious clubs in public schools if the if the school uh, secondary schools if the school allowed other extracurricular clubs. That changed a lot because that on the right they saw that as oh finally there's a recognition that students have some right to express their faith during the school day. Um, and it got us away from this false argument about whether teachers should lead people in prayer or not, and back to a reasonable discussion about what is the role of student religious expression? When is it appropriate? What are the limits and so forth? Which is, which is a, the real argument, really, you know, it's uh, under the First Amendment. So in other words, all of those things together, equal access, consensus guidelines, uh, change in the, stand, in the framework in California— added up in, in textbooks, added up to a new day for religion in public schools. You know, I grew up, uh, so I uh, grew up in Missouri, and I graduated high school in 2002, and the year I graduated was the year that 9-11 happened, and I often talk to my students about the fact that I didn't even know what Islam was when 9-11 happened, and 
then it was in the textbooks, but I grew up in one of those environments where we weren't talking about it in any meaningful and deep way in classes. So I had no clue. So literally my first introduction to a religion of almost 2 billion people was on 9-11. And and that's a story that I tell to my students sometimes. And I tell them how much better they are at being aware of the cultures and the societies around the world simply because they were curious enough to sign up for a class that explicitly discusses religion for an entire school year and how much better off they are than me when I was their exact age. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's uh, almost axiomatic that ignorance and fear are at the root of much hate and intolerance Yeah, in our country and historically. And we miseducate students at our peril. So I think 9-11 was kind of one of those, you know, moments when people woke up to the fact that religious illiteracy has consequences. And, uh, and we, I think, uh, even though it's hard to get it right sometimes, and of course, Islam teaching about Islam in public schools has its own controversy surrounding it, uh, since then, nevertheless, I think we have moved from the question that I had to confront in the in the mid 80s, early 90s of should we do this or not to how do we do it, which is a much better question. Yeah. And opens the door then to 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 giving teachers resources and support to get it right. Now, I mean, we obviously have a long way to go, but in a nation where we are one of the most religiously diverse societies in the world and among developed nations, one of the most religious, for people not to be educated about their neighbors, about their communities, much less about the world they're going to inherit, is dangerous. It's not only bad education, but it's actually dangerous. And the resurgence of anti-Semitism, the rise of Islamophobia, the these kinds of things that we're dealing with in our culture now are reminders that, you know, if we do not tackle this, if we do not help young people understand these traditions and understand one another, they're going there. It could lead to dire consequences. Yeah, I follow you on Twitter and I can tell that you are greatly concerned about our nation at the moment. What do you see as some of our greatest challenges in the next 10 years? Well, I think the big question for us, as it is for people in much of the world, is uh, will we be able to live with our deepest differences? And the Americans, I have found in my career, tend to, to sort of shrug and say, of course, we're Americans. We can work this out. Uh, but I think that is a, a, a false hope. That's folly. Um, I think we're in danger of breaking down uh, as a country, if we uh, don't handle our diversity, particularly our religious diversity, in better ways. And uh, so I think the great challenge is, uh, as we become now, we're not no longer a Protestant majority nation for the first time in our history. Uh, we are essentially transitioning to a minority majority nation, if you will. No one is in the majority. And even if one lives in a part of the country where your tradition happens to be in the majority, as in Utah or as in Mississippi, somewhere in the country, you are a religious minority. And how you treat others where you're at the helm, as it were, uh, and others are in the hatches will determine how you're treated in places in the country where you're in the hatches. So this is the challenge. How do we not learn to like each other better or, or accept each other's religions. That's not a First Amendment requirement. Uh, we hope under would want understanding. But of course, people are not going to accept another religion if they are committed to their own. There are reasons why they believe their own is the true religion or they wouldn't be part of it. But they can learn as citizens to respect the rights of other people. And I think that's one of the great challenges. It's not so much... It, you know, learning about others is one challenge, but learning the civic virtue of protecting the rights of others, including those with whom one deeply disagrees, is got to be, I think, at the top of the list of public education's priorities as we go forward. 
you know, I, you've probably seen this a million times, but whenever my students learn about other people's religions and read other people's holy scriptures, not only do they know about other people and can talk to other people about those religions and ask questions from a well-meaning and curious stance, but I often find that they become strengthened in their own views while also increasing their compassion and their curiosity towards all people. That's right. And, you know, if people want to see the study done on that issue, we published it some years ago. Uh, it was a study done by uh, Emil Lester, and, um, and it was of the Modesto Public Schools required course in world religions that every ninth grader in Modesto takes. I think it's the only, still the only required world religions course uh, in public schools in America. So he studied the impact on students, and, and his, his conclusion was exactly what you're describing. Students, first of all, were more tolerant of others, and even six months out, remembered quite a bit, actually, about other people's religions and were conversant, uh, but also they had more of a civic virtue. They had more civic respect for the First Amendment arrangement in freedom. They understood why it was so important for us living with one another. And finally, it showed that they didn't change their religious views personally by being exposed to people of other religions. It, it did not move them to become, you know, whatever the parents' greatest fear is. They mm -hmm. A Hindu, if they study Hinduism, well, that just doesn't, that didn't happen in this course. So I think that, you know, parents need to support this, uh, not just because it's good for education. They need to support it if they want their young people to become engaged ethical citizens and if they want people to be able to live with one another uh, in peace. I love that. And um, so now I kind of want to talk about something happy. What stands out as some of your proudest accomplishments, some of your favorite memories? What gets your emotions surging and feelings of great happiness as you think back on all these amazing things that you've done? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll mention Modesto because we just were talking about it. And one of my great moments and it wasn't me, it was Thomas Jefferson, it was Roger Williams, it was James Madison, because that's those are the people I take into the room. I always start with stories when I'm going to a community that's in conflict. I've negotiated a lot of conflicts over these issues over the years, and Modesto had a very difficult, painful conflict some years ago about uh, LGBT issues and religion um, in the community, and whether, how do you deal with the conservative religious community was afraid that if you had sort of tolerance about LGBT issues, that it would be uh, it would be against their faith and they would feel excluded. And so that was the blow up. And I was called in to sort of mediate this. And without telling the whole story, one of the great moments was that first day of mediation, meeting with the committee, which turned out to be 90 people. Everybody wanted to be on the committee. So it was a, it was a big committee and we had to meet in the cafeteria. <laughs> and there were the, you know, the fundamentalist pastors in the back of the room. There was a gay student representative to the school board in the front of the room. There were all these different uh, constituents, you know, uh, mostly looking at each other with suspicion. But by the end of the day, thanks to going back and looking at our history, looking at these First Amendment principles and how they're in all of our best interests. I mean, we, we, we came to agreement in that room that everyone has this fundamental and alienable right of liberty of conscience, you know, and it's so precious and it's what brings us together and makes us realize how fortunate we are to live in a country where, where everyone is protected to follow their conscience and the things that deepest concerns in their life their God, if you will. Um, everyone in the room agreed with that. Even though they didn't like the way some people chose to follow their conscience, they agreed that's the freedom that makes our lives possible. And we also ended up agreeing that we had to take responsibility to guard that right for other people. You know, the fundamentalist pastor had to guard it for the gay student, and the gay student had to guard it for the fundamentalist Christian. And, you know, after they talked about it, they realized, we don't have to accept each other's 
worldview or way of life or whatever to protect the right to make a dis dis choice in your life about who you are. And so at the end of the day, they, we actually came to agreement that public schools could do this if they were the neutral, honest broker, allowing everyone to have a voice and protecting the rights of everyone, um, including LGBT people. Uh, they can form their clubs just as the Christian students can form their Bible club. So that was a very wonderful moment for me because, uh, you know, it, it showed that even with the most difficult of issues, and right now in the religious liberty world, the great difficult issue is how do we negotiate uh, claims for uh, of conscience, religious conscience, and protection for of civil rights for LGBT people. How do we how do we negotiate that uh, in a way that somehow t brings us forward? And Modesto showed to me we can do this if we work at it, if we listen to one another, if we take each other seriously. Um, and there's so many uh, other moments, and one that does stand out is is when we were finishing the negotiation for the religious holidays uh, consensus statement. How do you deal with the so-called December dilemma? You know, <laughs> uh, and and you know there were some people who said this was after our first one on religion in the curriculum. Then we wanted to do one that was only on the holiday issue because that has been the perennial fight in many communities. And some some of my colleagues said, don't even call a meeting. Uh, we will never agree on language about this. You know, we just disagree. Well, we did call the meeting and in four months of, of discussion and negotiation, we came up with what I still think are the best guidelines for how you deal with religion in December out there. Re religious holidays in public schools, questions and answers, we called it. And it, this was we and it, and it went out maybe around 1990 or so. Um, st still embedded in many local district policies. So I was very, but that's not what I'm proud of. Uh, what I'm proud of is the meeting, the last meeting, where we were just set to go to the printer with this document that, you know, we had sweated over for all these months. And my colleague, Buzz Thomas, and I were co-chairing the meeting, and we were about over the finish line. And Forrest Montgomery who represented then the National Association for Evangelicals, a lawyer, raised his hand and my heart sank. I said, what do you want, Forrest? He said, you know, he said, I'm not happy. And I said, but Forrest, we're almost finished. We've negotiated this. He said, no, I'm not happy. He said, under, in this one question, when we asked what about teachers and their responsibility, we don't have enough language in there saying that teachers should not use their position to proselytize. And everybody looked at him, stunned. Like, what? This is from the National Association of Evangelicals? And Buzz Thomas couldn't help himself. He popped out with, Forrest, don't you know who you're representing here? <laughs> and I, I, I hit Buzz in the side. I said, hush up. <laughs> No, let the man talk. And you know what? We added language strengthening the warning to teachers that you don't use your public school classroom to either promote religion or denigrate religion. That under the First Amendment, you're there, you know, to be the fair, neutral, honest broker to teach about religion and so forth. So we added stronger language to make Forrest Montgomery happy from the National Association of Evangelicals. And I never forgot that moment because the stereotypes, you know, the the dismissal, well, you know, that person is in that group, so he can't be fair and this person can't be fair. And I have found over and over again in my career that if we just give people a chance, the, most, most of these folks in, in these conversations are going to find their civic virtue and bring it into the conversation. And they're going to do what's best for the country. I love examples on this show that come out that bust stereotypes about what people might might think. You know, that is such a great uh, stereotype buster right there with who came out in favor of stronger language. Yeah, you know? right. So ACLU or People for the American Way, it was Forrest Montgomery. I love it. So 
you've done this work. I mean, you've sat in these hundreds and hundreds of hours of meetings and had these extremely challenging discussions and revised language like throughout the course of your entire career. And you know about these complexities of religion and diversity in America backwards and forwards. And what I want you to think about now is now that you're transitioning into a new role, think about the young people that are taking over the helm at the Religious Freedom Center. How do you purposely seek to mentor the young professionals at the RFC to prepare them to take on what you've been doing for the last couple of decades? Well, you know, of course, I only mentor if I'm asked. That's the first thing. You know, you have to, one has to be asked because otherwise it's not going to be received well. And I've learned that at a certain point in, in one's life and career, you know, you have to let people find their way and ask their questions. And they're going to do it differently than I did. Uh, but having said that, they do ask. And when they do, you know, my what I keep coming back to is one of my early heroes, Roger Williams. And... You know, he was very fundamental in his faith. He was more Puritan than the Puritans. He really got exiled from Massachusetts Bay because he was too Puritan, not because he wasn't Puritan enough. People don't realize that. Um, his his search for, for the true church his whole life is what drove him. And yet here's the man who gave us our concept of liberty of conscience for all people. And so that's... That's, to me, the great lesson of our early history, is that the person that we might dismiss today as being just a fundamentalist in his theology and so forth is the person who, out of that conviction, believed that God required everyone have liberty of conscience. And it's deeply rooted for Roger Williams in his faith that, that we guarantee liberty of conscience. In other words, people have the right to choose in matters of faith, even if they, if, if Williams believed they chose wrongly. That's between them and God. And so he gives us the first society in the world with no established religion and full free exercise to two principles that later become the First Amendment and define religious liberty in America. He gives us the first place, Rhode Island, where that's the case. And I keep going back to that and want people I mentor to go back to that story and to, you know, use that vision that he had uh, as part of our DNA at the first at the Religious Freedom Center. Because, you know, when I go into community, I want to bring that spirit of Roger Williams. Roger Williams, who debated the Quakers when he was an old man in public, you know, <laughs> trying to convince them that they were wrong about the theology. And here's the guy that gave them the right to be Quakers in Rhode Island and build their meeting places when no one else would in any other colony. And that's the America that I envision. And that's the America I think the First Amendment envisions. And I want the Religious Freedom Center, therefore, to be that place where we encourage Americans to, to bring their faith into the public square or if they have no religious affiliation, bring their ideology, bring it. You know, engage one another robustly, vigorously, but do it in a way that respects the rights of other people. Do it in a way that keeps the government out of it, right? Because the minute the government gets involved in brokering these conversations or taking sides in religious debates, then conscience is violated. Religious freedom is killed. So... That's the, so the Religious Freedom Center is not, should never be on the right or on the left. And it's not just middle either. It's principled. It's a, it's a First Amendment framework center. It's a, you know, what do we share across our differences center? It's how do we use those civic principles that we've all signed up for, if we are American citizens, to negotiate differences with civility and respect. So that's who I want us to be. You know, if, if the establishment clause to the First Amendment keeps government from imposing religion, government from taking sides in religion, and if there's one word that describes what the establishment clause is intended to do, it's fairness. 
It's to create this level playing field for people of all religions or no religion. And I want the Religious Freedom Center to model that in what we do, in our work in communities, in our programming, in the resources we provide teachers. That's why we spend so much time with public schools out of our work, not only because that's been my career and my history, but because that's the laboratory for this experiment in making sure that the First Amendment framework keeps working. People learn how to use it, whatever their religion or no religion, they learn how to use these principles to engage one another across their differences. And so that's what I keep coming back to uh, as I try to help this new generation uh, carry forward the vision of the First Amendment. So it's never too late to start learning about religion. If you were somebody who didn't have these experiences in school, it's never too late to learn about more religions. Do you have any, a couple of book recommendations that you could suggest to people who might be interested in educating themselves a little bit more about religion, like introductory primers that might help them uh, explore a little bit? Oh, you're going to be better at this than, than I am, uh, because you've really been in the classroom. You know what students these days really would respond best to. I would say, though, if you ask me that, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think William Lee Miller's book, First Liberty, um, is one of the gems in talking about this arrangement that I have tried to describe and where we got it from. And it does then, one has to learn about the religious roots in Rhode Island and in Virginia and the religious debates. And so that's, that's a very important primer to me that sets the stage for learning about the different religious traditions um, in, our, in our culture. I also highly recommend, and you probably know this series, but Oxford University some years ago, and Oxford University Press, I should say, published a series on religion in America. And you know, it, th those um, books are uh, great because scholars in the different fields, uh, Judaism, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, Catholicism, scholars in these various traditions wrote these, these volumes for young people, mm. you know, sort of high school age, maybe even bright middle school age, and there's 17 of them. Three of them are chronological, sort of religion in America, you know, telling the story over the, the different times in American history. The others are on particular religious traditions or, in the case, Eastern religions in America is one. But those books are lively, they are scholarly, and they are written with young people in mind. So I highly recommend uh, any and all and I think every public school library needs to have that series in it. I'm, I'm, you know, not pushing Oxford University Press, but I think that's that's the best series created for young people on on the various religions in America that I know. Dr. Charles Haynes, you have been so generous with your time uh, with me today. I'm so grateful to you. I've learned so many things, and you've given me so many new things to think about as well as I move forward with my own life and career from here on out. Um, is there a place that you would direct people to find resources that you and your colleagues have created for the betterment of education in the U.S.? Sure. The religiousfreedomcenter.org. You know, religiousfreedomcenter.org is where now people can find, teachers, administrators, students can find outstanding resources for, for dealing with all of these issues. And my colleagues created these out of this, all of this work that we've done over the decades, but they have put them into professional development modules. So, you know, look for those. I mean, there's a lot of resources on the site, books and consensus guidelines, you know, old school resources. These are new school, you know, <laughs> these are, you know, discrete podcasts, if you will, or like that, or, you know, professional development modules, I guess is the right expression. And, you know, you can do one on religious holidays, you can do one on equal access, you can do one on, you know, religion in the curriculum. And they are wonderful, uh, you know, and, and this is something we have never had until now, right? So, you know, you don't have to have 
me or Buzz Thomas or somebody come to your district and do a workshop necessarily, you can actually have, um, in some cases, Buzz and I are in these modules, but many other people uh, come to your district through these professional development modules. So I'm very proud of that. They're the only thing like it in existence. And we now don't have to just hope for the best out there. We actually have a way to do professional development in every school district in America that, that cares about this issue. Go find it, everybody. Dr. Charles Haynes, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real pleasure for me. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.